welcome to the 1,000 Hours Out. Oh, I'm going to try that again. Welcome to the 1,000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. This should maybe be like the Ginny and Puglisi show, I think, because Jeremy Puglisi is back for the third time to talk about their brand new book, their brand new incredible book, Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. Congrats on the book, Jeremy, and thanks for being here. I will come on your show anytime you want. I will talk about camping anytime you want. I'll talk about anything you want. Thank you for having me. Always thrilled to have you. And seriously, huge congrats on another smashing success. These books are fantastic. They really change my life. I tell you what, I am inserting more adventure because of them. I read them and we're looking for new things to do because you open people's eyes to the wonder that is all across our country. And if people are outside of the country, they have things in their countries too. But just by reading the book, it makes you want to adventure more and to explore because you find all these cool nuances and the really unique things that families can enjoy with their children, that couples can enjoy together, that single people can enjoy traveling and visiting new places. So tell us how you ended up with a three-part book series. I mean, Jeremy, these are so cool through source books. They just are fantastic looking and each one is unique. They go together on the shelf. I adore them. Well, we're, we're super lucky that we found the right, we found the right agent, we found the right editor, and we found the right publisher. And, and so it, it is a team effort in a lot of ways. You know, Stephanie and I are writing the books. Our editor actually camps. She loves camping. So we, wow. you know, our agent found us the perfect editor uh, who really loves our projects. And for us, it's always, you know, this whole thing has never been about like gaining a social media audience or, or it, we, we had no intention to make this a career, even though now it's a career for both of us. We really just like to share our travel recommendations. You know, mm -hmm. it started with a little family travel blog like 12 years ago because it's like a very deep human desire when you go somewhere cool to want to tell like your friends and your family like, oh, my God, you got to go here. And that's really the impulse behind this entire series of Where Should We Camp Next books. It's like, we want other people to go and, and make the memories that we made and have amazing trips. And there's nothing more satisfying to me than getting an email from somebody saying, hey, you inspired us to go to Olympic National Park. And we did that Hurricane Ridge hike that you guys recommended. And it was the best hike my family ever went on. And that's like super special to me to know that we're creating resources that, that help people go out and make those memories too. How gratifying, because that has a generational significance. Those kids maybe will take their kids. You don't know where that leads, where the end of that is. And so it could be for decades and decades that one decision that a family makes in their family to go visit a new place to try something new, it affects their grandkids and down the line. What a thing. It's so it's so funny you say that. It's so funny you say that because the family that emailed me about doing the Hurricane Ridge hike in Olympic National Park, it was a three-generation hike. It was the grandparents, the parents, and the grandkids. And they sent me a photo of like 12 people on this hike that we had recommended. Um, so yeah, it, it's true. It's um, We're helping people create memories for them, for their kids, and then hopefully their kids become campers too. And that says so much about you and Stephanie. Like you said, you're out doing it yourself. You're sharing your family journey. And people feel close enough to you through your writing, it's so approachable, to send you their photos so that you can cheer them on and say, oh, that's so cool. I mean, that really says a lot, Jeremy. Yeah. I mean, we have a, we have like a deep connection with, and it started with our podcast listeners, really. And I'm sure you can relate to this, that somebody that's listening to your voice for an hour every week, they, they trust you, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe even more so than just like a recommendation on Instagram or on social media. Uh, and I think the books are that way too. It's like a more trustworthy yeah. resource. And uh, yeah, a lot of people plan their family trips out of our podcasts and our books. And it, it truly is one of my favorite things about doing this. Yeah, it's incredible. So you've been on our podcast. This is the third time. The first time that you came on is episode 117, where we talked all things camping. So heading into the summer, so many people are asking questions about camping, all the different ways that you can camp. And you, through your book, which was one of the first ones called See You at the Campground, A Guide to Discovering Community Connection and a Happier Family, 
in the great outdoors, which isn't that what we all want, community connection and a happier family, will you go through the ins and outs, the nitty gritty of camping, and you open people's eyes to all the different ways that they could do it. So you could go and you could glamp, you could stay in a really cool yurt. You don't have to necessarily bring a tent and all of these different supplies. You could go to a camping resort. So that's a fantastic book. That was episode 117. And then episode 134, you and Stephanie were total champs because I sprung on the last minute when we were talking about the book, Where Should We Camp Next?, which is a top travel guide. This is a 50-state guide to amazing campgrounds and other unique outdoor accommodations. We went through the entire United States, just rapid fire. And so that's a fantastic episode. That was 134 people can listen to. And what we're talking about today are the national parks. And I was just talking to someone recently who said, I, I caught the national parks bug. And I think a lot of people feel that way. They go to one, and then they start to have this desire to visit more. Is that what happened with your family? That is exactly what happened with us. So when Stephanie, before we had our kids, Stephanie and I went on like a three-day, four-day trip to Acadia National Park. And we were pro- we were we were married, but we had just been married. So we were still like in our early 20s. We were pretty young. And we stayed at a cheap little bed and breakfast. And we were both, we both fell in love with Acadia National Park. And to be quite honest, you know, that was 20 years ago. But to be quite honest, we didn't have national park experience, but partly because we were in New Jersey and we grew up at the beach and there aren't great national parks right around the corner. Also, because we were were broke, for goodness sake, you know, we didn't have money to go out to Yellowstone or to fly to Yosemite or something like that. But that trip to Acadia really changed the direction of our lives and how that you're kind of making me think about it. Uh, but, But first, we fell in love with that particular park where the mountains meet the ocean and coastal Maine. And then we went back to Acadia four or five times, and then we kind of had the realization, well, we're not just in love with Acadia, we're in love with like the National Park experience. And then we really did start to branch out from that one park. But I think you nailed it. I think a lot of people fall in love with one park first, and Mm -hmm. and then they move on from there. Mm -hmm. What I love about your books is that they are not formulaic, though they could be. They are just so different from chapter to chapter. It keeps your interest. And you just think, oh, well, how could they have thought of something else different to write about, a different topic? So you talk about in your books, you'll weave in what's the best way to check a review, what are some things that you should be looking for, as well as hiking tips, as well as how do you get the campsites, where are the best campsites, all of these different pieces of information. And every time it comes up, you think, oh, yeah, of course, I need to know that. And you fit it in. So they're not formulaic. They're very interesting to read. And in fact, probably your books are the only travel guides I've ever read cover to cover because they are so interesting. So can we start off with talking about this thought that everyone is excited to camp at a national park, but that sometimes it's easier said than done? Can you explain why that is? Yeah. So I think that when people first get excited to like, oh, let's go to a national park, let's do a national park trip. A lot of people have that feeling sort of like now, like like in April or May or early June. Oh, let's go on a national parks trip this summer. And the, the problem is that it does, it can take a lot of pre-planning. And ideally, you're planning a national parks trip a year in advance. Now, it does not have to be that way. I am not mm-hmm. discouraging anyone from listening from trying to do like a last second national parks trip, but it's it's you're going to have some challenges just finding sites, booking sites, f- figuring out the lay of the land, doing your research. I mean, these are massive destinations that are tricky to explore. Um, there's there's safety issues you need to learn about. So the more ta- advanced research you can put into it, the better. And particularly what is difficult can be the reservations for camping, because at the most famous national parks, the really iconic national parks, which are what most people want to go to on their first trip, Mm -hmm. um, the campsites can be hard to get. And then sometimes people get disappointed when they go, you know, they try to book a site at Yellowstone or Yosemite in May. And they go, oh my gosh, this, it's sold out for the entire summer. Now, now there are some ways around that to some degree, mm-hmm. if you want to you know, talk about that. But I think that some people don't realize the amount of planning that goes into it. If you're a Disney mom or a Disney dad, 
you might get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like you can do a last second trip and you can do a spontaneous trip and it might be really, really fun or it might end up actually being stressful because you just didn't do enough research beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I would tell people like, if you want to go to one of the major parks, start planning now for next summer. If you're hell bent on doing a last second spontaneous trip, don't give up hope though. We can, you know, you, you could make that happen too. Cancellations are a big thing, and that's what our family has tended to do because we tend to not plan ahead like we need to, and maybe not even necessarily with national parks, but then you're looking last minute, or you always suggest stay in the area. You don't necessarily have to stay right in the park, stay in the area, and then go visit what's there. You also talk in this book about the variation in price. Where does that come from? How come some are more expensive to stay at than others? Yeah. So if you're going to camp inside the national park at a national park campground, which tend to be the most beautiful uh, because they're right inside the national parks, they're often really, really cheap. They're often $20 a night, maybe $30 a night. You don't get hookups like water, electric, or sewer very rarely, but they're cheap because there's not hookups. And and they're just cheap because, uh, you know, the national parks are kind of subsidized by our dollars a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but because the, the price is so low, they book up really, really fast. Everybody wants to nab those 20 or $30 sites. And the National Park Service is not really trying to turn a profit on those sites. It's just not in the ethos of what they do. In fact, a lot of National Park campgrounds will not even sell milk, eggs, you know, all the basics because they want you to go into the gateway towns and spend your money there. They don't want you to spend your money there. So it's cheap to camp in the park. Now, when you move outside of the parks, like into the gateway towns, you might think of Great Smoky Mountains National Park and like Pigeon Forge, then it gets a bit more expensive because you have private owners who are, you know, it's their family business. They're trying to make a profit, understandably so. But the thing that shocks people is that those campsites outside of the parks, like say at like a Campgrounds of America, KOA, they can sometimes be three or four times the price. So it is a significant price jump. Might be 20 bucks a night inside the park. It could be a hundred dollars a night outside of the park. And there's not a middle ground so much for the most part. So there can be sticker shock, but then, you know, it's easier to get sites out there outside mm-hmm. of the park, partly because they're more expensive. But then you do also get pools and playgrounds and other amenities and you do get extra value. And then you can just day trip into the park. So, so we've done both and we love both. And often we recommend doing both, maybe stay inside the park for four days, get the rustic experience, and then go outside of the park and uh, have the pool and the playground and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And what the book does is it gives you both. It tells you some of the best options both in and outside. And so I love that it does that because if you're a last minute planner or you're planning ahead, you're helping each type of person. And then you talk about how campgrounds are real estate, just like anything else. And so in the more expensive areas, your camping might tend to be more expensive. And also sometimes the pricing will change depending on the time of the year. So you've got to look to see when you're going, if cost is something that's important to you. I want to hit one other big thing that you talked about in this book before we sort of dive into the meat of some of the different places. Well, two things, actually. The first one is you had really good information in here about navigating reviews. And you also included your Facebook group, the RV Atlas Facebook group, which I should probably back up. I didn't even introduce you. I'm just assuming everybody knows who you are. <laughs> well, we've been on, we've, this is our third appearance, so. It is. But let me just throw a little bit of information out there. Jeremy Puglisi is the co-host of the RV Atlas podcast and the managing editor of the RV Atlas. Stephanie also is a co-host and she is the vice president of content for Road Pass Digital. So you have co-authored all of these books together. You've been featured in magazines and dozens of online publications. You have an RVing show on YouTube and you guys just are camping with your family all over the country. It is fantastic. So you also have this RV Atlas Facebook group. So just tell us about how we navigate reviews if we're trying to figure out where to go with our family. I love reading campground reviews, actually, but you have to um, have you know add some context that sometimes is missing. So a lot of times people will leave really bad one-star reviews for bizarre reasons. Like, you know, uh, there's a lot of one-star reviews for campgrounds out there that say something like, 
the ranger came over at 11 o'clock and told us we had to turn our music down and put out our campfire. And, you know, we, 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 wanted, we wanted to stay up later. One star. Well, when mm-hmm. I read that review, I'm like, I want to stay. I want to camp like five here. Stars. Right? Five, five stars. stars because I like a, I like when they enforce <laughs> quiet hours, right? Mm-hmm. I like when there's a ranger presence and it's not a party place. So people get cranky and leave bad reviews for bizarre reasons. I read a review recently as a one-star review where the parent said, oh, my, my child fell off the swings and hit her head. One star. Well, I I feel very sorry that happened, and I, I don't know, but it, I don't know if that's a reason to give the whole campground a one-star review. So look through the reviews. Something that bothers somebody else might actually be something that you like that is important to you. Yeah. And then the reviews also include important information. And so we look, we always filter for the most recent ones. If you're using Google, that's an option. I'm not sure on all the review sites, but you can filter to see the most recent ones. So, and you even talked about this in your book. It might say super muddy, big rainstorm came through, that type of thing. So it just gives you real-time information for your family. Mosquitoes, right? Oh, the mis- just so you know, mm-hmm. the mosquitoes are horrible here. Two stars. Well, that might only be during the month of June, right? So, but th- but they're not going to put that on their website. They're not going to be like, we have really bad mosquitoes here in June. But those are the little things that can ruin an experience if you're not prepared or it might make you decide to look elsewhere. I think we need to write a book about how to leave a review that you would say, look, you review the campground and then you can add the information at the end that says mosquitoes are bad in June, but that doesn't affect the star rating. (laughs) That's great. Well, and then you talk about in your Facebook group that people will often get answers to their questions in minutes. And so that's a great place to look if people have questions for different camping things in the RV Atlas Facebook group. And that would be about campsites, camping in general, RVs, all that kind of stuff. So gear, I'm sure. So that's a great place for people to go for a resource. A couple more things here just as general things. You really highlighted the Junior Ranger Program and speaking to park rangers. Tell us why. The Junior Ranger Program is fantastic, particularly for for younger kids. Like our teenagers now don't want to do it anymore because they're 14. But when our boys were 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, and our youngest still loves the Junior Ranger Program, what you do is you, you go to the visitor center and you ask for the Junior Ranger booklet. And there tends to be an activity booklet for kids to do and fill out during their stay. And they're oftentimes based around like what's in the park, like at Shenandoah National Park, you know, you walk on a nature trail and you're trying to identify different flowers or trees or butterflies. And as you find them, you mark them off. But then some of them can be really, really quite different. Like we went to Hyde Park, which was FDR's summer home. And it was like a Secret Service themed uh, Junior Ranger booklet. So they, they can be really quite creative. And then what happens is over the course of, depending on the park, it might take a day, it might take two days, your kids fill out that booklet. And when they've completed it, they bring it back into the visitor center. And the visitor center is always the point of contact for this. Mm -hmm. And some parks have many visitor centers, some have just one. And then what they will do if, if the ranger will check the booklet and make sure that the booklet has been completed to their satisfaction. And we actually had a ranger tell our our five-year-old Wesley once that he needed to like go back and finish something. Um, So sometimes it can be a little tough, but if you've completed it to their satisfaction, they will swear you in as a junior ranger. And then you get these adorable, charming, like collectible junior ranger badges, which our kids still have. So it's an absolute must, I think, if you have younger kids to do the Junior Ranger programs. Sometimes you can go online ahead of time and it's like it's downloadable or you can check it out and see if it's something you want to do or if you have enough time to do it. Right. I mean, if you're just in and out of Mount Rushmore really quickly, your your kid might not have time to complete it. But for the most part, they're like one day. Super, super fun. It's a great way for kids to learn about the park. Feel that sense of accomplishment. I have an adorable picture that I will remember for the rest of my life of Wesley, like holding up his hand, being sworn in as a junior ranger at Shenandoah National Park. So my kids loved it. I think all kids love that program. Mm -hmm. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, 
Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember to sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com/slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last minute get together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. Yeah, and then those park rangers, when you're rubbing shoulders with them, they're really going to help out your family, depending on your family dynamics and ages of kids. They know that park in and out. So it's a great idea, like you said in the book, to make sure that you're asking. There's two last things. You talk about packing tons of snacks and water. Oh, okay. So that's particularly like the larger parks. So somewhere like Yellowstone is massive. And you can be driving literally five hours away from a concessionaire or from a visitor center. So first of all, you need to plan to have the right amount of gas in your car, but also just bringing a cooler in your car with some water, some snacks, some cliff bars, whatever it is that floats your boat for your family. That has been essential for us so that we can stay out all day in the park right. if we want to, as opposed to everybody getting hangry. So it's it's not like Disney World, okay, where you can get a snack around every corner, you can sometimes be hours and hours away from food. Um, so we keep a car cooler, you know, stocked and loaded for our National Park Day trips. Mm-hmm. That's such good advice. It's really just good advice in general, because if you have to leave because of food and water, it's such a bummer if you just would have had more with you. And then also, I do think sometimes you can help other people. We've been in situations where we've been able to help other people because they didn't have things with them. And so you just keep a little extra in there. The last big tip that I had written down, and there's obviously a lot in these books, but was about getting up early, being an early bird, even on vacation. Why is that important when you're going to the national parks? It is probably the single most important tip in that book because our national parks can get really crowded by, say, 11 o'clock by lunch. They can get extremely crowded. And what happens is, like, if you want to go on a hike or you want to go to a popular overlook, oftentimes the parking lots are pretty small. So if you can get your family up 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, get to the trailhead early you get huge rewards. And like in Acadia National Park, we wake up at about six to go on our morning hike. We get to the trailhead at 6.30 and every time we're able to park. Then we go on like a three-hour hike. I'm thinking of the Gorham Mountain Trail in Acadia National Park that has stunning views of the Atlantic Ocean. When we come back down at 10 or 11 o'clock, people are circling the parking lots, trying to find parking, waiting for people to leave. And then that that awesome National Parks trip that you spent so much time planning, uh, spent so much money to get to Yellowstone, Yosemite, it becomes very frustrating. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so even if your family is not naturally early birds, it makes a ton of sense to get up early and go to those more popular places in the park. Then in the afternoon, when it gets crowded, maybe try the off the beaten track destinations or places where you know not ever not everyone is going. Mm-hmm. Another thing you need to know about national parks is most people are going to the same five or six places. You know, in Yellowstone, people are going to Grand Prismatic Springs, they're going to Old Faithful. Most people are just not, you know, trying to get on the trail or get off the beaten track. So those types of places, you got to get up early, even if it's not your natural thing to do. Mm -hmm. That's really good advice. And then you said in there that it doesn't clear out as early as you might think either, that people are there up through dinner time. You know, I tend to think people leave around 4 p.m. They're going to go, go get dinner, but that's not the case at some of these parks. And so you have to go early. Tell me this, and I could be wrong. I've been trying to understand. A lot of these parks have timed entry now, or some. I don't know if it's a lot, some. But sometimes the timed entry will say from 7 to 4. So if you got there earlier than 7, would you still need a pass? So the time to entry thing's interesting. There's actually only five places, I believe, right now going into summer 2023 out of all the national parks that have timed entries. Oh, okay. So it's not as big of a deal as it seems to be. Well, it made huge news because during okay. the pandemic, places like Rocky Mountain National Park and Zion National Park were trying to deal with the overcrowding. So they implemented the timed entry. And so because it had never happened before in the National Park's existence, it it was a huge story. But a lot of the places that implemented it during the height of the pandemic have now stopped doing it already. But the places that are doing it are doing it for very specific things. Like um, Haleakala in Hawaii, if you like sunrise uh, is very popular there, right? Everyone wants Mm -hmm. to go in and see the sunrise at that park. So there can be a timed entry for something like that. In Acadia National Park, it's for Cadillac Mountain, for the sunrise again, I believe, uh, because so many people try to get up there to see the sunrise because it's the first place you can see the sunrise on the East Coast, debatably. Um, But then what happens is people can't park and people get frustrated and it becomes kind of an ugly scene. And then like Firefall at Yosemite has timed entry. That's where like when the light hits one of the waterfalls at a certain angle, it looks like it's on fire. So they're pinpointing things that get really, really crowded during certain times. I believe in Glacier this summer that going to the Sun Road uh, has timed entry. And like you said, it's from like 8 to 2 or whatever. Don't quote me on that exact time. And then it's just for going to the Sun Road. You have to realize Glacier National Park is massive. You can go to a thousand other places, but the National Park Service is just pinpointing a few things. And then I think one of the other ones is Angel's Landing in Zion, that really super crazy, dangerous hike along a ridge. And they they just want to limit the number of people for the sake of safety. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very few uh, cases where that's happening right now. Okay. Interesting to know. And other information in the book about just how to choose hikes, recovery days, making sure that you add in some recovery days, always getting your picture with the national park sign. So really cool overview type information. Can you tell us how you organize this book in particular? So we look, the, the whole you, you nailed it already. We wanted to show people the best campgrounds inside the parks and the best campgrounds outside the parks. And we didn't just look at quote unquote national parks, right? There's 63 national parks, but I believe there's over 400 different national park units. So one thing that was super important to us in choosing the parks, and now I'll call them all parks for the sake of simplicity, was that we also wanted to highlight some of the ones that are not national parks. We wanted to highlight national lake shores, national seashores, like Sleeping Bear Dunes, right? Kind of close mm-hmm. to you. Uh, Cape Hatteras National Seashore, Gettysburg National Monument. So a lot of these parks that have other kind of smaller designations often have amazing camping experiences. So Mm. we wanted people to know, look, Yellowstone's out there, Yosemite's out there, Glacier's out there. We have chapters on all those iconic parks. But we also wanted to say, hey, you know, what about Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area in New Jersey? You know, like that's a great camping experience too. And then by doing that, what happened with the book that I love about this book is that it sort of redistributed um, all of these options between the East and the West, because so many of the iconic national parks are in the West, 
But in the East, we have a lot of those smaller designations, lakeshores, seashores, monuments, battlefields from the Civil War. And so this book is very evenly spread out from the East Coast to the West Coast, where a lot of other National Parks books that are out there, and of course, this is the only one you need, um, really are focused on the American West, because that's where most of the huge, grand, iconic Uh National Parks are. Because, you know, we were able to conserve all those spaces in the West. In the East, we we built everything up and then realized, oh, we should have conserved some of that. (laughs) Um, So... And we didn't get every single park in, for goodness sake. At, at the very last, I started writing Isle Royale and oh. uh, and just we ran out of pages and word count. So like, and it's the least visited national park in the country, by the way. Yeah, but um, you but- know what? I think it's one of, well, no, of course, it's not one of the biggest. It is, never mind. Just never mind. <laughs> I was thinking, well, I was just talking to someone about the Upper Peninsula and Isle Royale, but then within Michigan, there is a state park. This is like, I'm totally <laughs> flubbing all my words. There is a state park called Porcupine Mountains. Oh, right. That's state in the park, UK, I And that's believe, one yeah. of the biggest ones in our state. So... Okay, people are just going to have to suffer through that last 30 we, seconds. <laughs> we had to we had to make hard decisions, but I mean, it's a robust 350 pages of camping options inside and outside of the parks across the country. So even if you're if you don't live near Yellowstone or Yosemite, but you might want to do a national parks trip and you're from the Midwest or you're from New Jersey like I am, we've, we've got options for everybody. Yeah, that is so cool. And that is what the book does. It just reminds you that there's stuff everywhere and go do it. So this one is split into to, I think, about eight chapters where you split it up regionally. We actually split it up by regions, just like so the National nine. Park do, like the, the National Park Service splits it up by regions. Okay. And we followed their system for how they split oh, the parks great. up. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So there's these nine chapters that go through these different regions. So let's talk about a few of them. Let's talk about, well, we talked about Acadia. So that was the North Atlantic region. What I did was I pulled out one that stuck out to me or one that I've thought our family wants to go to and then grabbed a little bits of information so that people can have a sense of what's in there. So like if we're talking about Acadia National Park, you are explaining when the black fly season is, you're talking about that there are no showers. Yeah, you have to go outside of, I believe that's Blackwoods Campground. It's in a beautiful location in Acadia <laughs> National Park. But they you actually have to go, and Acadia has like little towns within the park. It's a little bit unusual. So you're not going that far, but you actually have to leave the campground and pay to get a shower at Blackwoods. Wow, that is so interesting. So then you have these interesting things like unique attractions, a lumberjack show, author's choice. This is in all of the different parks. You have an author's choice where once again, you're talking about the pie lady. I think we've talked about the pie lady before at the KOA holiday Bar Harbor Oceanside. Oh my God. And you need a, you need a scoop of ice cream with that, with those pies. Yeah. She drives around the campground with blueberry pies and cherry pies and different kinds of pies. And then it's like you buy it right from her. She's driving through and then you wrap them up in foil, heat them up over the campfire, put a scoop of ice cream on there if you have it. And you're in heaven, basically. Yes. And you can get fresh caught lobster on site. So it's all of this interesting, fun information worth braving the crowds, different places to go to a place for popovers. And then tell us about the Island Explorer. The Island Explorer is a free shuttle bus in Acadia. So L.L. Bean actually sponsors or pays for this big shuttle bus. And of course, it's like L.L. Bean branded. So I guess it's kind of like a rolling advertisement for L.L. Bean. But L.L. Bean's mm-hmm. you know, headquartered in Maine. And it, you can get almost anywhere using the Island Explorer shuttle buses. And they come, they pull into the campgrounds even. So if wow. you don't want it, and it's a great way to avoid the crowding and the parking issues that we just talked about. And they're running nonstop, basically, in season. So a lot of people um, will take a motor. And that's a great reason why Acadia people rent motorhomes. They rent motorhomes, go to Acadia. Then you don't have to worry about having a car because you just hop on the Island Explorer and it takes you to the trailheads. It takes you to the visitor centers. It takes you to the beach. It's it's really a terrific free service provided by L.L. Bean. That's incredible. I had no idea about it. It's got bike racks. What a cool thing. Okay, let's pop over to another chapter, the Civil War National Park Tour. And I had written down about Harper's Ferry because you had this really fun section in there called the do's and don'ts of dragging your kids to Gettysburg Military National Park. 
Stephanie totally wrote that page. <laughs> um, so we took the boys to Gettysburg probably when they were too young. Like they were really little. And we did, we bought the, I think we bought a CD that you put in the car and played and it was like a driving tour mm -hmm. and it was like really dramatic. And it was like recreating the, the, you know, the battles and as you're driving by the battlefields and one of the boys at one point said, well, when are the soldiers coming? Right. Like he just, he thought it was going to happen or something right in front of him. Stephanie and I loved Gettysburg and the boys were like too young. So there's just some tips in there about there's some national parks that are like very educational and historical and you're in the visitor center and you're reading about Abraham Lincoln. And like, I, I, I want to take the boys back there now that they're like 10 and 14. Cause they, they love their history classes and their social studies classes at school and they don't love all their classes, but they love those. So she just gives some tips about like the kids can sort of like, maybe not like that type of trip if they're too young or just about knowing your kids, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good information. I mean, this is the thing. I want a travel guide written by a family. That's what I want because we are a family and that's the best information for us. You talk about how from Memorial Day to Labor Day, they play taps at 7 p.m., which is really a moving experience. But then here's one of the extras that I'm talking about. There's a section that says, read these Pulitzer Prize books before you go. So even that, just interesting things that you could read to enhance your experience. And so I love all of those little things that are woven in, but it's not formulaic. It's different with every chapter and it always fits. You're like, oh, well, yeah, of course, that's what we would wanna do. So let's pop to the Mid-Atlantic region. My parents are huge fans of Shenandoah National Park, which we've not actually been to. And you talk about, you say, one of the best family campgrounds in the country is the Jellystone, do you pronounce it Luray? Jellystone Luray, you got it. Tell us about that one. Yes. So the Jellystone Parks are really kind of off the hook family fun with pools and water slides and hot tubs and laser tag and outdoor movie nights. And that's a Jellystone where you're looking at the Shenandoah Mountains and then you can drive into the park entrance there is like eight minutes away from the Jellystone. So that's a fun way to you know do a national parks trip, right? You, you stay in your national park at that somewhere like Jellystone Loray. You wake up early, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. You go in, you do an awesome morning hike. Maybe you catch a ranger program, go to the visitor center. You wear your kids out a bit. Then you bring them back after lunch or whatever, or for lunch, and you bring them back to Jellystone Loray, where there's a pool and there's water slides and there's ice cream. And it creates a really nice balance. Because mm -hmm. when I visit a national park, I could hike every day. Like, that's what I want to do when I visit a national park. But if for seven days in a row, we do nothing but hikes in the parks, like, the, look, the kids are not, it's not going to be as fun for them. <laughs> now, there's not a Jellystone outside sure. of every national park, but that's a great example of where you could get like a resort camping experience and a national parks vacation all wrapped into one. And like Mammoth Cave in Kentucky also, there's like a really awesome resort style Jellystone outside of Mammoth Cave. Oh, we're going there in the fall. We've been, we've been before, but... That is not far from us. And so that's an example like you're talking about, Jeremy, that this is for people all across the country. Shenandoah is not over out in the West. It's not one of the big five or, you know, any of these crazy popular ones that everybody goes to. Same with Mammoth Caves, but Mammoth Caves is the largest cave system in the world. And it's such a cool place. You get to ride on that bus. They take you to these different cave tours. And I liked how you wrote in this one that's right outside of Shenandoah that it's good for teens. So that information that people might be looking for is in there, that the food is good. And then you have other favorite experiences like Skyline Drive. You talk about having a meal on the back deck of Big Meadows Lodge, and it's just clever. Your blackberry lemonade will taste better with mountain views. Like it sure will. And that's another place you can stay too. Like if you're if you're listening to the podcast today and you don't have an RV, like tent camping doesn't maybe seem like your thing. National Park Lodges are awesome. My goodness, I, I'd like to write a book about National Park Lodges and visit all of them. A lot of the national parks do have accommodations inside the parks that are not camping. They're, they're like lodge rooms. And then there's like a restaurant and a gift shop, and maybe they have tour guides that do different things. So there's, there's actually several. There's at least two lodges in Shenandoah National Park and Big Meadows. We stayed at Big Meadows Lodge once. It's, it's an awesome way to do a national park trip. And the book is not didactic about how you should go. Like for some people, a tent's awesome and that's what they want to do. You know, some people want to buy an RV or rent an RV. That's fine. Some people might want to do a hotel or, or a cabin. And we don't have hotels in the book per se, but we do, we do nod to the national park lodges. We do talk a lot about cabins and glamping. 
you know, Stephanie and I always say, camp the way you want to camp and don't let anybody else judge the experience you want. It's your vacation dollar you're spending. It's your precious Mm -hmm. time that you're using. Figure out your level of comfort, whether it's tent or glamping or lodge or whatever, and go for it. And what you've done is you've opened people's eyes to realize that, hey, there are way more options probably than you even realize. There's way more options than I realized, that's for sure, when I picked up your book and started to learn about here's places that's great to go as a group. And, you know, if you're going as a group, but grandma and grandpa don't want to stay in a tent, they could stay at this cabin or at this lodge. And so it really is one of those things that is so different from a hotel. Hotels mainly are the same as two queen beds and a bathroom. And sometimes you get a microwave and sometimes you don't. So, I mean, there's very little variation there. The breakfast tend to be the same. So with this camping, there's so many options. And so it makes it perfect because you can make it work for your family. I did have mammoth caves for Southeast and you talked about how it could sustain a week long family camping vacation, which I thought was an interesting thing. You could go and stay for a whole week. There's enough to do. And you talk about that Jellystone that you just mentioned. That place has 93 air conditioned cabins. That's a lot. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp h-e-l-p.com slash 1000 hours. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com outside for 15% off your first order. A lot of them, see, and a lot of people don't know that this all exists because it didn't exist 20 years ago. Like, this is a real new trend in the camping industry where there's other, like, alternative outdoor accommodations like the glamping, like the cabins. A lot of these private campgrounds outside of the parks have just as many cabins as they have tent sites now. And you nailed it. Like, it makes it perfect. You can go on a vacation with a family that doesn't want to be in a tent. Like, you could be in a tent, they could be in a cabin. Or if you own an RV and you're, you know, the other family that wants to come along doesn't own an RV, they can get a cabin. And sometimes you can get the cabin right next to the RV site. And it, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be like RV owners went on vacation with other RV owners. But this mm-hmm. whole thing has exploded now. There's there's so many great options. And yeah, Mammoth Cave is, is a great place for a week's vacation. Like the Corvette Museum is there. There's lots of hiking. I mean, like for me, the caves are kind of one day. I'm slightly claustrophobic. And I just, you know, <laughs> so I like the, just the general tour down there. Like I don't want to be like crawling on hands and knees. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of other cool things. There's a whole ecosystem of fun things to do around Mammoth Cave. And some national parks are remote and don't have a lot of things to do around them. But then other national parks have tons of things to do around them. So it all depends on the park. Mm -hmm. And if people are trying to figure that out, 
all they need to do is get your book, Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks, because it has the best campgrounds and unique outdoor accommodations in and around national parks, seashores, monuments, and more. So all the information that you're wanting that you ever thought you could want is in these books, but it's not too much information. You ride the line so perfectly. And so that's a really fun place to go. We actually have a, a small caves unit, like a curriculum. It's a two-week unit about caves and learning all sorts of things through the study of nature. And Mammoth Caves is in that one. They have 400 miles are charted in those caves. And you can pick from all these different types of cave tours, probably depending on your level of claustrophobia and age and that type of thing. Some of them have a lot of stairs. And so they have all the information in the visitor center. So that was a cool one to see in there in the Midwest. So uh, we're in my hometown here. Of course, I picked Pictured Rocks and the 12 Mile Beach Campground, which is near Grand Marais, where you can find these glowing rocks. Jeremy, they're called Uberlights and they glow under a black light. So there is so much to do up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and it tends to be fairly unpopulated. Now, I know you guys have been to Sleeping Bear. Have you been up into the Upper Peninsula much? Stephanie has. Stephanie went to college in Michigan. So she got up there and and handled that chapter. We did Sleeping Bear Dunes as a family. We say, and I think I've said this in your podcast before, like we think Michigan's one of the most underrated states for, for camping in the country. There's so many great camping, coastal camping opportunities. And those campgrounds up in Pictured Rocks a lot of them are are on the beach, on these beautiful mm-hmm. beaches, and like you're falling asleep, and you're you're you know you're hearing the sound of the waves breaking, and then you can just walk down to the sand in the morning, and and again, like you said, not as crowded. You know, planning right. a trip to Yellowstone right now for July might be tough. That's the type of trip you might be able to pull off and still grab some campsites. Right, absolutely, and there's a lot of paddling up there, kayaking, tons to do. Okay, so now we're heading out west, I think, here, and I had written down about the bats at Carlsbad, that you can see bats, is it inside of a cave, caverns? Yeah, so that's another trip that Stephanie did without me. So I'm not expert on the bats in Carlsbad. We 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 split these, you know, between the two of us, we have gone to like 30 of the 63 national parks and some and some separate, oh. some together. Yeah, but I believe the bat experience there is inside the caves. Yes. That is so cool. And one of the things that I loved on this one, this is in Carlsbad, that the KOA there, it says the KOA has an on-site smoker and owners who love to cook and deliver barbecue right to guest sites. You may have a tough time choosing between the pecan and mesquite wood smoked combo brisket with pork and sausage or the barbecue baby pork ribs, but it is all good. Bobby Flay even featured their grub on his show, Barbecue with Bobby Flay. It says tent campers love the hexagonal tent village. I mean, Jeremy, I just think that if you ever feel like you're in the hum drums of life, like you are feeling down and you're just feeling kind of blah, all you have to do is pick up one of your travel guides because then you're like, wait a minute, life has got amazing things like a hexagonal tent village and I want to go have this on-site smoked meat at this campground and there are so many things to do. So a lot of interesting things there. Well, let's pop over to the Rocky Mountain region. That was one of the chapters. This is where all the things are. Yeah, and that's one of the ones that's more crowded and is re- going to require a lot of planning. I mean, you're near you're near Denver. I mean, a major city is is right outside the door, basically. So that's one where you're going to want to plan now for like next year. Uh, though you could, you know, you might be able to get a cancellation, et cetera, et cetera. Most people enter the park from the east side in like the Estes Park region where there's a great KOA there, a bunch of great campgrounds there. And then I believe it's the Moraine Campground is inside the park. Those are really, really hard sites to nab. The west side of the park is beautiful too and less crowded. And there's actually like some RV resorts on the west side. And there's a couple national park campgrounds. There's at least one national park campground or two on the west side of the park. So if you want to go this summer and you can't get into the Estes Park region, which is very, very packed in the summer, you might look to the west side of the park. And that's a tip you could apply to other national parks as well, that sometimes one side of the park is really, really busy and the other side isn't. 
you know, like Yellowstone, the lower loop is packed. The upper loop is not as crowded. It's further Ooh. away. So Rocky Mountain National Park, maybe try the west side of the park uh, or start planning now for a year in advance and get one of those great campgrounds in the Estes Park area. Mm-hmm. This is quite the list here. Yellowstone Glacier, Theodore Roosevelt, Badlands, Mount Rushmore, Wind Cave, Grand Teton, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, Arches, Canyonland, Zion, Great Sand Dunes, Rocky Mountain, and actually, I have to tell you this cool thing, Jeremy. I am going where I'm going for my very first time out to Moab with my daughter. So just the two of us, she's 13 in just two weeks. And we are going to do a guided rafting trip down the Green River in Desolation Canyon, it's called. And that was actually in your book. I was so excited to see that it was in there because that's something that we are actually doing. Oh my gosh, I'm, I am so jealous. Like out of all of these places we've been, the, the top for me for a return trip is Utah because it's it's been a while. Wow. Uh, I'm super jealous. I'm gonna have to have you on our podcast to talk about your Utah trip. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited. I'm also extremely nervous. Of course, you know, my daughter's not, but we're going f- on a five-day trip where you're just on the raft and then on the shore. So I don't quite know how that's going to go, but we're super excited to try something new and a little bit of canyoneering. And so we'll be going to Arches and Canyonlands, which are both in this book where you dive into the five districts of Canyonlands and the five great hikes in Arches National Park and great places that are right outside the park to stay and just all the information that you need for these bigger parks. Then the Western region comes next. So Joshua Tree is my one of my brother's favorite places in the entire country. I've not been have you been to Joshua Tree? Yes. And I went to graduate school in California. So, you know, good, good proc. It's fairly close to the LA area. So again, that is a very popular crowded park that requires a lot of pre-planning. There are some really awesome campgrounds in the national park campgrounds inside the park. It looks like you're camping on the moon or on another planet. There are really some amazing options there. Then Joshua Tree also has some cool options outside of the park as well. And there's even some good like hotel options, resort hotel options. There's an auto camp location outside of Joshua Tree, which has the Airstream rentals. So again, if you if you want to do Joshua Tree and you try to book a site inside the park and you have no luck, look outside of the park because there are good options there as well. Mm-hmm. And then just know that it is going to be hot in the summer And spring is probably a much better time to do somewhere like Joshua Tree National Park. Hmm. So, and I just want to make sure that people are understanding when I'm going through each of these chapters and talking about the Western region, I'm just picking out one of nine or 10 things that are there. So like in the Western region, you go through the Great Basin National Park, Death Valley National Park, Yosemite, Redwoods, Joshua Tree, Sequoia, Grand Canyon National Park, and then actually Hawaii ends up in this one too. So really interesting information. It's just a very deep book. I don't know, that's not the right word. There's a lot of breadth here. There's a lot of information. So each region has many different places that you can go visit. And then the last one, I thought this was so cool, Jeremy. You're talking about the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. That In this one, you highlighted some different YouTube videos. And I just thought that was so interesting about people who have, this is, I guess, in particular, it is referring to people who have done some serious adventuring in Alaska. But you have different YouTube channels that people could look at and see People who took a honeymoon all the way across Alaska, people who have done dispersed camping, people who have done a 15,000 mile journey from Alaska to the Arctic Ocean. So I just love how, how, I mean, how do you do that? How do you pull in all this interesting stuff? We love to, we are, well, look, Stephanie and I both were teachers for many, many years. And part of getting our kids excited about a trip is exposing them to the places we're going before we go. So I like we watch a lot of YouTube videos before we go somewhere. Like before we went to Mount Rushmore, we're on YouTube, like looking for all the cool vloggers that have been there. And then it gets you more excited for the trip. And there is some incredible travel content on YouTube. And, you know, part of that page you're talking about was just giving a shout out to some of the great YouTube content from RVers who have gone to Alaska and documented it. And uh, it gets you excited about the trip. It gets you prepared for the trip. 
and it's a free resource, a free resource. I mean, there's there's definitely junk on YouTube, but then there's people that are like producing like television quality content on travel locations. So before we go to a major national park, we're looking for those things to watch Ooh. ourselves, to learn and to educate ourselves. So in the book, like, you know, we wanted to share some of the resources that, that got us excited um, for the national parks, the books we read, the YouTube videos we watched and I'm so glad you're pointing that out as something you liked in the book, because we've been getting a lot of feedback like, oh, I love that you're recommending other books in your book. And I love that you're pointing me to all these cool YouTube videos to watch before I head to the the destination. Yeah. I mean, did you ever think you would be a travel guide writer? What did you go to graduate school for? I I got my master's degree in English, and then I I taught high school for 20 years. I wanted to write books when I was a kid. My brother used to write little books. like He used to type up little books, little stories, and he kind of inspired me to always want to be a writer. I never thought I'd get into the nonfiction family travel but I love it. I, I would rather write these books than like a novel, you know, <laughs> or, or be like some literary novelist or something like that. Maybe that's more prestigious. I'd rather write these books partly for what we talked about already, because I know that it's changing people's lives. It's helping, you know, inspire them to make great memories and plan their trips. And I I love it. I love this category of family travel and I, I plan on keeping writing more books in it. Ha! Huh, that makes so much sense. That's why the books are so good. They're so good. I've never read a travel guide that's so good and interesting and so broad reaching, but hits what you want. And the way that you write, that's so interesting. So you you went to graduate school, you have a master's in English, and you've always liked writing. And that shines through. It definitely shines through. I think that the fact that we both were teachers for many, many years has helped us be good at, at you know, writing this type of family travel content because yeah. we're, we are we are teaching and we are educating and we're, you know, giving people the best tips to go to places. For Stephanie and I, it's never been about like, look how cool our family is or look how amazing our trip is. You know, um, that's not, you know, we're just pretty normal people. We make mistakes. We screw up. Our kids can be difficult. And But, but then sharing what worked and what didn't to help somebody out else is is just in our real house, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're fantastic at it. So give us a rundown real quick, Jeremy. So people want to listen back. They can listen to episode 117, all about camping, 134, the best camping spots in America. This one is about your new book that just came out in April, Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. And tell us everywhere else that you are. You have your podcast, Instagram, website, Facebook group. There's a lot. So it's at the RV Atlas on all the social media channels. If you're new to camping, we really try to have the friendliest Facebook group out there, the RV Atlas group. Whether you're tenting or renting an RV or buying an RV, uh, Stephanie and I say, you know, the rule is no cranks allowed. We get rid of the keyboard commandos. We just eject them from the group. And we really have 20,000 members. It's a nice, friendly, welcoming group because there's a steep learning curve. You know, and we were there. We were new campers and it, it was challenging and we made mistakes and I broke things in the RV. And I always wanted the group um, to be like the group I wish I had when we started 12 years ago. So the Facebook group is home base in a lot of ways. And then there's the Where Should We Camp Next and Where Should We Camp Next National Parks, which you can get wherever books are sold. If you, you want to support your local independent bookstore, they may have it or they could order it. And then obviously uh, we're on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, Target.com, Walmart.com. You can get the books just, just about anywhere so yeah uh, hopefully you follow follow along on our journey and and the website thank you we have a website which we're actually redesigning right now we're getting a huge refresh on our website which we're super excited about that's the rvatlas.com all right and then tell us about your podcast because you are going through and highlighting you said this is the first time that your podcast has been around for a long time and this is the first time that you're doing subject specific season Yes, we're in year nine of the RV Atlas podcast, believe it or not. Uh, Next year is the 10th anniversary. And to celebrate the release of Where Should We Camp Next National Parks, we're doing a thematic season with tons and tons of national park content. Like, so the episode I'm going to put out later um, this week is like the five most underrated national parks in the country. And uh, we're reviewing a lot of campgrounds in the parks. And we're having, we have a lot of guests on like you do, um, talking national parks and talking camping. But it's a great resource for beginners and people getting into the lifestyle. And we kind of specialize in the campground and travel destination reviews. That's sort of um, the thing we do best. All right. What about YouTube? 
So we have the RV Atlas on YouTube. I'm not a big YouTuber, I will confess. But if you go there, there is definitely some good content on our YouTube channel. But I'm not like the vlogger posting on YouTube two times a week. But you're, you'll definitely find some good resources there, particularly if you're a new RV owner. Mm -hmm. So here we are. We're heading into the summer. And I think that not only because of the specific content, but also because of the general feel that these books give you that, hey, life is out there and go live it that people should definitely add these books to their shelves there's see you at the campground there is where should we camp next and where should we camp next national parks jeremy it has been a pleasure once again thank you so much for taking the time to be here and maybe one day we'll run into you at one of these parks Oh my God, I would love to. And thank you so much for what you do for inspiring people to get outside. And I, I just want to say to everybody listening, thank you so much. And, it, you know, even if it's a day trip or a picnic or a day at the beach, it doesn't have to be this massive national park trip. Maybe that's out of reach with your budget or your work schedule. Get outside with your kids. You know, that's what Jenny's preaching. And it's good for the heart. It's good for the soul. It's good for the mind. It's the truth. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.